You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash Preacher Boys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind the scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacher boys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Josh, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you, and your book is coming at a uh, pretty timely moment because I would say the word of the the word of the year, flavor of the month, whatever you want to say, uh, in evangelicalism right now is deconstructionism. You know, it's it's people talking about deconstructing their faith. People are talking a lot about doubt. And in your book, you know, you mentioned doubt is not a new concept. Uh, you mentioned people like Jonathan Edwards, you know, you mentioned people like Martin Luther that have doubted their faith, but I'm kind of curious about your specific faith journey. Like what is the, what are the moments that led you to writing a book on doubt and faith? 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor. And so I deal with a lot of uh, college students. I work at a, a Christian liberal arts university. And so I deal with students, many of whom are coming out of, um, you know, evangelical or Christian households, youth groups, but also some that have no faith background whatsoever. And so for me, the book came partly out of just conversations with students in my office, many of whom who are now they're starting to ask questions about the faith that maybe they've just sort of accepted because it was handed to them by mom or dad or youth pastor or a Christian school teacher. And now they're in college. And as we often do when we get to that age or get to university, we start to ask questions about what we actually believe rather than just sort of accepting things because, right. you know, mom or dad or somebody told us. And so the book doesn't come out of a real place of, um, you know, deconstruction or deconversion or even really a necessarily a dark night of the soul in my own life. I, it's not to say that that, you know, that dark night won't be coming in some way. But it's more, like I said, from conversations with students uh, who don't feel like they belong necessarily in the niche of the mm. church or specifically kind of white American evangelicalism or conservatism, where maybe they grew up and they're starting to ask questions about uh, where do they belong. Was that the context you grew up within? Yeah, I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, my dad pastored a small country church in Kansas, so right in the middle of the the country. And yeah, it was very much a sort of um, blue collar um, to middle class upbringing, um, mostly conservative, being in the middle of the country, being in a rural setting. And uh, I grew up in a church that was small and a lot of people kind of trying to get their life together some you know getting out of prison and dealing sure. with addiction things like that and saw you know sort of the beauty of ministry there but also the really hard parts and um, I grew up in that context and then became a pastor after uh, undergrad and uh, pastored you know in a local church or church plant setting up in Michigan before going off to uh, to do a PhD in theology gotcha gotcha yeah I grew up in a church staff home as well. Um, my dad was, uh, still is, um, you know, an associate pastor and, you know, minister of the Christian school that I went to, which was always super awkward when you're getting in trouble at school and it's your dad or getting in trouble at church and it's your dad. Um, but, you know, I, I resonate with seeing so much of the beautiful elements of, you know, the church within that context. You know, I've talked about on the show a lot, um, you know, that, that makes it difficult when you do see bad things, when you have all of this history, you know, I, I talk about all the time, you know, I spent my first 20 years on one campus, you know, and so when I drive by that campus, half of me goes like, oh, I remember doing this, this, and this, the other half remembers this, you know, those other dark moments that you mentioned that I think people who, you know, especially who grew up outside of the ministry context may not even have seen, you know, there's this like x-ray view you get of, of that situation. But um, I, I'm curious, like sitting down to write the book, you know, obviously, you know, writing, thinking about college students that are questioning, they're coming out as third generation Christians that are going like, was this ever real for me? Um, you know, what was your 
I guess, kind of goal, you know, with the book, what was, what was your hope? Like when you started writing that first line, you know, what were you hoping to accomplish with it? Well, I've said oftentimes when people ask me about the book that I feel like we're living in a cultural moment where a lot of people feel kind of terrorized by the fringes, <laughs> where the loudest voices on either side of any issue, and oftentimes everything gets you know boiled down into politics. So conversations mm-hmm. between the right and the left uh, are increasingly dominated by the shrillest voices in the room. And there's something to algorithms that sort of amplifies that shrillness mm-hmm. in, in a way that's new for us. But this book is very much trying to speak to people who feel caught in between sort of the warring extremes of our culture, Mm. maybe a really tight, uh, maybe a legalistic or a fundamentalist upbringing. And then on the other side, this sort of uh, complete unbelief or deconversion. And they, you know, many people who want desperately for there to be something transcendent, something more out there, but they no longer can identify with this sort of uh, fundamentalist faith that they grew up with. And so the title of the book is perhaps, and it comes from a a quote by N.T. Wright in his big Paul book and somewhere deep in the second volumes where where he's talking about the apostle Paul. And he says that sometimes believing in providence means learning how to say perhaps. Hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting word because it's different from a kind of like certitude. It's different than certainty or this claim to have it all figured out. Um, and it's also different. It's also different from this sort of like just throwing up your hands and saying, eh, we can't really know anything. It's a kind of imaginative word that says, what if, um, and, or maybe, and it's, it's, it's a word where we're trying to apply our creativity and our reasoning to the questions of faith and life that stands between what I call the extremes of a, a complete sort of secular doubt or, or deconversion, and on the other side, a really kind of strident or narrow or fundamentalist dogmatism. So between mm-hmm. doubt and dogmatism is, is sort of this middle ground that I'm, I'm trying to speak to. And, and as you said, it's not to say that doubt is bad per se, and it's not to say that we shouldn't want some sort of assurance on the other side, but I feel like a lot of people sort of feel caught in between, and this book's trying to, trying to speak to them. Yeah. Where, where does belief fall in that range? Because, you know, you talk about, you know, doubt being okay. There's this, there's this more imaginative, you know, use it, that adjective to describe it a little bit, you know, but when you talk to fundamentalists, which I'm doing often, um, you know, they talk often about the strength of your belief, like how strong, like, do you know these things to be true? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that almost becomes like, the method of salvation is like, how much do you believe or how much do you understand or know? Um, So living in that world of perhaps, you know, and I would say that's where I've lived the last year has been in this perhaps bubble. Um, You know, how does that fall in line with belief? You know, what, what does that do to our understanding as Christians or as people that are looking into the faith when they think of the word belief, you know, how does that affect that? Well, I think when some Christians, and especially in a certain sort of fundamentalist vein or in a, maybe a prosperity gospel vein, when they say belief, what they really mean is certainty. Um, they mean certitude. And right. if you don't have it, it's, a, it's, it's at least you have to sort of twist yourself into knots to try to uh, pretend that you have it. And so there's a conflation, I would say, or a confusion 
between faith and certainty. And that word faith in the Greek, you know, pistis often gets translated as faith. It gets translated as belief. Uh, it also gets translated, and I think maybe a better translation in some cases is we're talking about allegiance or we're talking about a posture of trust. We're not talking about certitude. And so that's maybe the first thing I would say about belief in the context that you're describing is that sometimes it's been misdefined as a kind of certainty, um, or you have to fake it if you don't have it, or your prayers aren't going to get answered. You know, if you're sick or your loved one dies, you must not have had enough belief. You mm -hmm. know, you must've had some hidden vestige of doubt. And so that's why your loved one didn't get better. And the, the magic formula didn't work or something like that. So I would say that's a kind of like perverted view of what belief or what faith or pistis should be. But what I'm talking about is also a little bit different than belief, because I say in the in the introduction, you know, if we're talking about these two extremes of like total certitude on one side or like total unbelief on the other, um, a lot of people would say, well, doesn't faith occupy that kind of middle spot, you know, mm -hmm. between between the two? And I think in some ways it does. But when I say perhaps or when I talk about a kind of renewed imagination, um, I do see that more as a posture of the imagination rather than the will. And so I see faith uh, in some cases as more an act of the will. It's giving one's allegiance to something, even in the absence of certitude, right? Or mm. a kind of trust, you know, whereas the saying of perhaps, or what I call a kind of sacred speculation is also connected more to the imagination rather than just sort of the will, if, if that makes sense. And that's sort of how I distinguish what I'm talking about in this book from just maybe just a book about faith or mm. a book about belief. Yeah. You said something that's kind of compelling to me, which is you, you mentioned, you know, it, there's this faith, not necessarily being the certitude, you know, this, but all it's this building of trust or giving allegiance to something when you are still building that trust. And to me, you always hear the cliche evangelical phrase that, you know, it saturates a lot of Christianity, which is it's a relationship, you know, it's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And one of the elements that doesn't feel relational, like a typical relationship is that it, it's like this going from, you know, walking down the street for someone who's a first generation Christian, walking down the street with no knowledge of who God is in the Christian context to, you know, complete allegiance, blind faith, you know, and that's not how relationships typically work. There's this, right. there's this ebb and flow of trust and rebuilding trust and moments that confirm that trust. And I think that's a really interesting way to describe it. You know, that, that trust in the absence of complete certitude, which that, that's an area where I was talking with a friend recently, that's where people lose me in conversations when they go into the absolute certitude, you know, moment, because I don't feel like anyone is there, you know, there's going to be moments where you doubt your worldview, no matter what worldview that is, um, it's, it's going to happen. Um, I, I am curious too, as a, as a believer yourself, when it comes to giving allegiance in the absence of complete certitude, mm -hmm. you know, I, I guess for someone who's listening, and I would put myself in this category where, you know, I find myself in a place where, you know, I feel the least amount of certitude I've ever felt, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, but like I said, there are things about the faith that are compelling to me, but you know, it's, it's, 
it's an interesting, like I said, it's an interesting balance of, I struggle, you know, giving my allegiance or buy-in to something that I'm not sure if that's, you know, I'm not even sure why that's there, why Mm -hmm. that exists, but also, you know, there are the questions of, you know, what if I'm just the issue, you know, what if I'm not processing this correctly or making the right decision? So um, how do you get to a level of comfortability, giving allegiance in an area where there isn't certitude of, of some level, like a percentage of certitude that would say like this above anything else? Mm, yeah. Well, I talk a lot in the book about how do we define things like doubt and how do we define mm. things like certainty, you know? Because I do think there are people in the scriptures and people you encounter in life who they don't have a kind of mathematical certitude. I mean, we're not talking about like logical syllogisms or the way that you can be certain about, you know, the fact that two plus two equals four. And, and so I, I talk about how, you know, when we talk about God, we are not in that realm. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not plotting the schematics of a circuit breaker where everything just lines up and you can just see how it all connects. I and mean, we're dealing with this invisible you know, immaterial, transcendent being, you know, that we can't just wrap our fingers around. And so the language of certainty can't apply there in the same way that Mm. it does in sort of, um, in sort of other disciplines. And so we have to almost become more comfortable with the necessity of a kind of mystery or a Mm. kind of uncertain uncertainty. So to your question though, about how do you give allegiance to something that you can't, you know, be certain about. I think um, in some cases, the assurance, or at least the sense that I'm on the right path only comes um, when we have walked down the road. It comes through giving ourselves to certain practices, even in the absence of belief in certain cases. Um, I think in the Western world, there has been a a huge emphasis on um, belief and sort of, you know, after Descartes and others, you know, you doubt everything and then you build back from the ruins, you know, and that seemed to work okay for Descartes, but it didn't really work very well for many of the people who came after him, you Mm -hmm. know, it was much easier to, to sort of tear down than to build up. And so I think if we're talking about belief in God and in terms of you have to believe and then you practice that that's just, it's a, it's a way of viewing Christianity that would have been honestly kind of foreign to many of the earliest Christians where it was very much an act of following in the absence of understanding or certitude and a kind of assurance in some cases, I'm not saying this is true for everybody that you just get the gift of like assurance, like 20 years down the road, but there is a kind of assurance or at least a kind of peace that comes as you practice the faith that can't sort of be given prior to um, you walking down that road of, of obedience. And so I, I, I kind of encourage people not to worry so much about having to have everything figured out and be absolutely certain. And then, okay, then I'm going to follow. I think some, in some cases, and for some people, the Christian life is a bit of the reverse and giving ourselves to certain practices um, in the hope that God will meet us there in the midst of our questions. And so I, I don't see myself as chasing after a complete certainty, but I do think that 
there can be a peace that comes as we walk the road of uh, trying to follow Jesus and trying to give ourselves to the person in the way of Jesus. And many people I talk to, they are burned out on the church. They are burned out on, you know, evangelicalism and all of the different problems, but they still find Jesus incredibly compelling. And, Mm -hmm. and there is still this sense that I, there's something about Christ that I can't get away from. And I think that's an okay place to be. That's an okay place to, to start uh, for, for anybody. Yeah. That's a, that's a word that keeps coming to mind over the past few months has been just compelling. I think that's where, you know, and I have a podcast, so I've been fairly transparent about where I'm at, you know, throughout each stage. And and that's important to me. I think it's because I came in a fundamentalist, very hypocritical upbringing that, you know, I, I just don't want anybody to think of something I'm not at any point. So it's like the irrational fear that I have. Um, And so, you know, but for me, there's been times, you know, and I, I mean, I, I went long into, you know, my early twenties chasing, you know, studying and reading and trying to, and, you know, starting the show was, you know, I found everything about, I found the the whole, all, all of evangelicalism, like aside from, you know, there were abuses that were happening that were not, you know, and then the political climate was not at all. But the, to me, there was this utopian, version of this, where when I would read the Bible, I would say like, if it looked like this, this would be great, (laughs) you know? And so, um, so for me, it was just, I got to a point where I would see what was happening within the churches among leaders who were supposed to be the ones who understood it the most, who had walked the path longer. And it just came to a point where I was struggling to reconcile you know, and I knew as someone who studied apologetics for a long time, I knew how to overcome all these objections in a way, mm-hmm. but I would see people and go like, if the fruit of the spirit is a thing, if people are transformed and new creatures, why does nothing seem new? Like, it seems like this is just, you know, all the things they talk about happening in Hollywood are happening in the local church of 200 people. You know, there's all these, these strange things that I really grappled with, but and then there's these compelling things. Like I, when I interviewed Beth Allison Barr on the show, you know, listening to her describe scripture from perspectives I'd never heard before, listening to her talk through passages like I'd never heard, I was sitting there in the midst of the strongest doubt while still holding on to this faith going like, oh yeah, that's it. Like, that's the thing that's super compelling to me. So it's been interesting, again, going through this ebb and flow where, you know, the church definitely to me has not been <laughs> compelling, but the figure of Jesus is an interesting one to wrap your mind around. Um, and it is something that's hard to, it's hard to shake the compelling nature of that figure uh, mm-hmm. for me anyway. Someone's probably listening and disagrees and some are probably listening, disagreeing with other statements I've made. That's kind of what I like about this audience. So it's just kind of a, a there's a huge blend of, of people that, that tune in. Yeah. But. Yeah, that's not a question. And sometimes on the show, I like to just say something and then not ask a question. Um, but th- but I I just really do like that's a that's a really interesting thing that happens is like something will be said. You've said two or three things where I'm like, yeah, that's right. But I think one thing you mentioned was the deconstruction, like burning it down to the nothing and then rebuilding. Mm-hmm. I don't think most deconstructionists are doing that though. I think most and I talked about this a few episodes back, I think most people aren't, they're not chipping away all their fundamentalism and starting new. 
they're mm-hmm. kind of just repainting their fundamentalism to align with a different belief system. So like what I'm seeing is, especially as I'm reading a variety of people is people are saying, oh, I was a fundamentalist Christian. Now I'm posting Richard Dawkins quotes, who is a fundamentalist in his own right and <laughs> treats other people very disrespectfully who disagree with his beliefs. Mm-hmm. They're not digging deep. They're just being a default fundamentalist in another category. And right. Now I'm in this really weird place where I find myself not aligning with Christian fundamentalists, but then people share links to quotes from atheists. I'm like, what is it? Like, this is way, this is the same, if not worse than Mm -hmm. this other version. And so somewhere in that middle, I guess, which is where your book lives is a really, it's just a really interesting place to be. And I guess from your perspective, are you seeing, what are you seeing the most among the students you're dealing with people that are in that, you know, 20 to 24 year old range, uh, what are you seeing them do? Are you seeing them jump ship into a different category? Are you seeing them just live in this awkward gut wrenching kind of middle ground? Like what's the, uh, what's the heartbeat of that generation right now? Yeah. One of the things that, uh, I, I get really weary of kind of generational generalizations where people say like, oh, millennials are like this. You don't like, like you when know, people start sharing Barna studies and say yeah. like, this is the roadmap for, I think I talk about in the book, you know, I, I could give a snapshot of the kind of students that I'm talking about by statistics. And I think mm-hmm. I refer to it as like death by Barna or something like that. But I find the, the device of story and narrative actually much more compelling. And so there actually is a fictional narrative about a young lady named Eliza who goes off to kind of a fundamentalist Christian university and begins to lose her faith. And that, and that narrative weaves its way through the book. And I wanted to approach sort of generational doubt through the lens of story rather than just through the lens of statistics or things like that. Cause I feel like in so many cases, when you dig down, maybe not the study itself, but the way that it's presented as being manipulated to a particular end, you know, but to, so that I don't dodge your question, I think one of the things I see with students, maybe there's nothing more, you know, I'm in America, I'm in middle America. And so that's my context. And in some ways, there's nothing more American than a rebel. Um, and it's this revolt against authority, whether it's the king or whether it's against your parents or whether it's against, you know, the, the church authorities. And so one thing I do see in, in young people, but even in myself, honestly, is a tendency to run as fast as you can away from whatever kind of extreme you were exposed to. Um, and so for students who were exposed to a really narrow, abusive, anti-intellectual, anti-scientific Uh, religiosity, there is a tendency to sort of just become a different kind of fundamentalist, like you're saying. And uh, I even joke in the, I joke in the book about how Richard Dawkins and Ken Ham, the creationist, could probably co-author a hermeneutics textbook and actually totally agree (laughs) on the way you ought to approach scripture. They would completely disagree on like whether it's true or not. But the way in which they handle it is surprisingly similar. It's a kind of wooden literalism, you know, and things like that. So one of the things I see with young people, but also honestly, just in myself, is a tendency to run away from whatever extreme you were exposed to and kind of find yourself in the arms of its sort of dark doppelganger on the other side which as you mentioned, I think that's an astute observation that you're really just trading one form of fundamentalism for another. And it's the same, 
it's the same sickness mm. in some cases that you're fleeing. It's just expressing itself in different dogmas, if 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 I could put it that way. Right. Right. Yeah, no, it's I, I I appreciate that that you included a fictional story, which I'm sure was inspired by a, a, you know several different stories that you've you've seen. But um, it's it's kind of like the Stalin quote, you know, the single death's a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. I think when we look at, you know, there's been especially since COVID, you know, there are so many you know Christianity Today and all these organizations are publishing think pieces on you know, statistics of why people aren't attending the church, you know, and, and I think it was down under 40% um, in mid 20 or mid 2020, mid 2021. And, you know, people were sharing all the reasons why this could be, um, you know, but it, it is, it's hard to wrap your mind around that <laughs> because again, in the world of algorithms, like you kind of only see your specific version and then lay that across the board but there's such a variety of reasons why people are questioning why they're stepping away why they are you know making the decisions that they're making um what do you think the role of spiritual leaders um i I don't i I don't necessarily want to say i think what a better word is but i would say spiritual leaders so even setting aside church but spiritual leaders thought leaders that are trying to communicate faith in an age where people are looking at politics as a mess. They are looking at uh, abuse scandals in the Southern Baptist Convention, the independent Baptist world, the Catholic church. What, what should faith leaders be focused on right now in their communication? Because it seems like there's a mix of the Jeff Durbin apologia world, which is like, you fools know what's going on. You're just hiding it. You're not, you're not addressing the truth that you know to be true. Um, you've got other people on the other side that are saying like, you know, deconstruct and find nothing else and just live in the freedom of not knowing, um, you know, what's your opinion on that? Where should people be focusing their attention? Yeah. Leaders, you know, leaders have a tough job, especially in our kind of COVID post 2020 environment. And I don't, I hardly know of any pastor right now. And I have a lot of pastor friends who aren't feeling like they're about ready to turn in their resignation letter. (laughs) And it's not necessarily because they're having a crisis of faith in the sense that they don't know if they believe, you know, Christianity or the gospel anymore. It's just because they're exhausted from people in their congregation um, shooting at them from both sides, you know, over everything from masks to politics, to vaccines, to, you know, issues of racial justice, they just feel like they're just getting shot at (laughs) from both sides. And no matter what they do, they are, somebody's going to be really mad at them. And when you're in a context where the parishioners are giving the money that pays your salary, that adds an additional dynamic there where you have this temptation to just do whatever is going to be required to keep your paycheck coming Mm -hmm. and to give you less headaches to deal with in your email inbox, you know? And so I have a real heart for local church pastors and spiritual leaders, especially right now because of just some of the things that they've been going through. And I think the vast majority of Christian leaders are not the kind of like celebrity scandal, rise and fall Mm -hmm. of Mars Hill, you know, Bill Hybels, 
we get fixated on the celebrity um, leaders. And in most cases, that's not the pastor that I know, you mm -hmm. know, not that they're perfect by any stretch of the imagination, no, yeah. but that conversation sometimes sucks up all the oxygen in the room. And in, in some cases, I've come to sort of notice this, even in my own, a fixation on those stories actually betrays a kind of problematic disposition in my own heart that mm. I too am just fixated on the celebrity, you know, scandal. Yeah. I just tend to dive more into the, the unmasking and uncovering of its side than the sort of prop it up by all means necessary, you know, yeah. side. And so, so for spiritual leaders, I think if I had advice and I'm not a, not a full-time pastor. And so I kind of am a little bit cautious to, to give advice, but I think if they can lean into um, shepherding and loving their local congregation and listening and comforting and um, having deep relationships more than sort of chasing the sort of the idol of celebrity ministry, then that'll be a healthy way to be the kind of leader who people can approach with their doubts and their questions. Um, and, and so that, and I see a lot of pastors who are trying to do that. It's just a very hard thing to do, especially in our, in our culture. And to, so as much as possible, I think it's going to be important for spiritual leaders to, you know, to put down the smartphone and to turn off cable news and all that, and, and try to be a shepherd to people who, many of whom are the reason that they're driving you insane is because there's deep pain in their life and they're reaching for these sort of um, culture war issues or whatever, because there's this pain there. And that just becomes an outlet or a way of coping with some of the deeper issues that they're dealing with. And so that would be my advice for, for local leaders. Um, and, uh, but I, they have a tough job right now. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, one of my best friends, um, he, uh, I should say two of my best friends, he and his wife, both in the, in the Bay area, you know, and church planners, you know, not a huge church. Um, but you know, it's, it is something that's always in the back of my mind when I see people that go like, Oh, all churches or all churches are this. I'm just like, you know, and then I go and sit down with them and it's like, you know, how, how quickly can I make it where I don't have to take a salary from the church by doing this? Or, you know, should we sell this in order to help pay for this for our church? And it's like, there's this sacrificial giving of themselves to the community, like not even just their local church, like the amount of effort they're putting into serving the community during this time is, is astounding to me, but that's, those stories aren't sexy, <laughs> you know, like those are the, not the stories that are going to get a podcast treatment, right. you know, and, you know, it is, and I understand the fatigue people have, you know, as much as anybody, if not more, <laughs> more than most, you know, like I've, I've talked with now 150 plus people who have experienced abuse in churches with a hundred to 200 people, mm. you know, so there's, there's issues that spread out across churches, I guess, broadly. Um, but it is important again, to avoid that default fundamentalism, it's important to recall that it's not everybody. And I would say that to any worldview or belief system or type of person politically, like not everybody is this, you know, kind of singular 
belief system. You know, there's all these different variants of it. Um, I, I'm curious, you mentioned like people being super, people through pain are grabbing onto these issues. They're kind of warring over things like mask mandates and vaccines. I'm not going to ask your position on any of that because that's going to be a huge distraction one way or another. Um, but I am curious, do you think the reason that people are reaching for those topics and becoming so personally obsessed with those is because it's an easier, more objective thing to grapple with than say the deeper issues within religion or faith or, or politics? I think in some cases it is. Um, I think in some cases that it's easier to sort of just join a side in those issues Mm -hmm. than to grapple with some of the deeper issues of pain in your marriage or in your, your struggles with your health or with your struggles with your kids or in areas of just persistent sort of addiction or, you know, that those are just easier things to, to latch onto and to pour your identity into. And I think I've, I've said this often about um, Christian leaders that in many cases, I've seen this shift for some where a leader seems like they they used to kind of be passionate about Jesus, but then they are now they're just like passionate about politics. And I think in some cases they just kind of got bored with Jesus and can't, can't see Jesus can't like sit down and have a conversation with him, but here's this 24 hour news cycle and it's there in your face all the time. And it's easier to shift your allegiance to, if we're going to use kind of like theological language to a different Lord. And especially when that different Lord is at least on the surface flying the banner of Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in some cases, I think the issue is that we have Christians who have shifted their allegiance and they just, they don't really want to admit it. And the, the, the reasons for that are probably diverse, you know, not just, not just one reason, but I think, I think in some cases, the reason that you mentioned is there's just real issues of pain that are uh, hard to deal with and sometimes even hard to name and it's easier to latch on to this other hot button issue as a kind of coping mechanism or as a substitute area of purpose in your life mm-hmm. where you feel like a part of a cause that really yeah. matters and something that's consequential and easily so definable that, yeah 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 i think that's um that happens in in some cases yeah yeah i, I used to say it a lot in churches i'd visit because there'd always be in the IFB world, there'd always be prophecy conferences and creation, uh, like creationism conferences. And I would always say, like, even when I was the deepest of fundamentalists, I would always say, I think people like those because they have no effect on them right now, but they're easy to debate. <laughs> you know, like uh, what you believe about end times doesn't affect anything about your current day, but it's fun to argue about. And nothing about how we got here to some extent uh, has any ramification on what you do with the fact that you're now here, um, but there are things that are easy to draw lines in the sand and, you know, fight over. Um, and, you know, it's a lot more difficult when you start go- getting into the New Testament and start identifying issues within your own church, you know, that starts getting a little bit too personal. So people tend to stay on mm-hmm. either ends of the, of the Bible. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit, we've talked quite a bit about the church, the, the spiritual leader side. Um, But I'm curious for people who are finding themselves in the position of deep questioning, um, you know, people who are seeing all of the things we just mentioned, you know, the, the bickering, the fighting, the missing the mark. 
Um, you know, there's some who are listening who, you know, are would never step foot in a church again. If you ask them right now, um, I may put myself in that category. I don't even know. Um, what would you say for someone who is not drawing a line in the sand? They're not trying to be a fundamentalist. They did truly believe, um, you know, that that's something that's come up quite a bit is, you know, I've had a lot of people that have been like, oh, you never really believed it. I'm like, I, that's news to me. <laughs> I felt like I, I felt like I truly believed it as much as one can, can believe something. Um, what would you say to those that feel sort of untethered and are trying to navigate while they have two fundamentalists on each side, barking at them and, and trying to get them over to one way or the other? Yeah. Well, I get that question a lot. I get it from former students, former pastors who are like, Hey, I can't tell anybody this, but here's where I'm at. You, you probably know. get those calls a lot. Yeah. Well, as soon as I published this book, I, I got a lot of them. And I'm like, man, oh, I man. wish if that's the only thing that comes out of this book is that people feel like they can approach me with those questions, then that's worth it. You yeah. know, cause I think that's one of the challenges within certain segments of the church is there's an, there's a sense that you have to hide your actual questions, yeah. you know, and that's really, really tragic. Um, and, and so, yeah, some advice that I give for, for folks like that, uh, maybe the first thing is that it's, I think it's okay to step back, especially to step back from uh, local church communities and specifically at places where there's been abuse and just really unchristlike. Um, behavior that it's okay to step back um, from that. And it may actually be necessary for you to do that for your own sort of health. And um, your, I would even use the language of your spiritual health as mm. it, you know, as well as your mental health and, and other things. I think that's okay. And, um, but I think, you know, it, it matters a lot. And I say this as someone who's, who's, you know, very, open about being a Christian and even yeah. kind of being located within kind of like the broad stream of uh, Orthodox Christian faith, you know, that, that it matters a lot how you wrestle with your doubts and your questions and who you wrestle with or wrestle alongside of, if that makes sense. And so um, some advice that I've had others give me and um, that I try to pass on that in some cases uh, we need to, uh, we need to go to the dead when the living have failed us. And I, and I write about that in the book, that there are some guides for us across the centuries that can actually be helpful for us because they're not enslaved to the same cultural moment as us. They're not enslaved to the same sort of like national or political or ideological sort of tribalism that we are. And that in some cases, to reach back in time for people who have struggled with uh, Christian faith um, can be really helpful when we are just inundated with what, you know, some authors call presentism, just the latest hot button scandal or issue or newsworthy story that nobody's going to remember 10 minutes from now, but it's the really, it's the big thing right now. And so sometimes when we're wrestling with our faith, I think it can be helpful to, to reach back in time to authors from the past who have gone through that dark night of the soul and have asked really honest questions um, of God, and so that's one piece of advice that I um, that I give. I I also give the advice, like I mentioned earlier, that at some point after you've stepped back and you've sort of detoxed from whatever toxic form of religiosity has 
um, sort of been in your life, I encourage people to lean into certain practices, even in the absence of belief, because as I said earlier, I think Christianity or the way of Jesus is in many cases, something that has to be uh, practiced in order to be believed. You know, it's a, it's a practice more than a set of dogmas that, you know, you can, um, so, so those practices could include all sorts of things. It could include the practice of prayer and even different modes of prayer, even in the absence of um, thinking that you're actually <laughs> talking to anybody real. And I, I tell the story in the book, I deal with another story of deconversion, um, in addition to the fictional one of Eliza, is the somewhat well-known one of uh, Mike McCarg and his sort of deconversion experience. I don't know if you've had Mike on the podcast or uh, anything like that. I don't know Mike personally, but I just read his story and found it compelling. And um, and so some of the things he talks about was, you know, the the effect of prayer upon us when we're in that season of wrestling, even when we don't think we're talking to anybody. That's a practice that I think God can use to um, just to do work in our heart. And I say that because I think that God cares about people, you know, and is um, wants to draw us into a, a deeper relationship with himself. And so if we sort of, you know, I, I go through some more kind of advice in the book, but if, you know, it's okay to step back, it's okay to unplug, especially from toxic expressions of the faith. Um, it matters a lot who you choose to journey with and the voices that you choose to listen to if you don't want to just get sucked into an opposing form of dogmatism or fundamentalism. And then thirdly, opening yourself up to certain practices that I think God often uses, even in the absence of the quote unquote belief, um, is a way that I think Jesus often meets people who are um, struggling in their faith. And so those are just three things that I often will tell people. I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment, but first I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible, and that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad, and it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code preacherboys 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PREACHERBOYS50 at factormeals.com slash PREACHERBOYS50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, I mean, even the figure of Christ was a counter-religious figure in a lot of ways. You know, there was, um, I, I don't agree, you know, obviously there's some that would say, oh, he just outright violated the religious laws. You know, there's some that would lean into that. I don't think that was necessarily the case. But I think what the religious structure had become was something that he was not a part of. You know, he was a he was he was still practicing. You know, he was still practicing the religious beliefs, but he stood, you know, toe to toe with what the what it had become, the corrupt version of what the church was. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that I think that's one of the reasons you mentioned uh, circling back to we identify with rebels. You know. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus is compelling as a figure to almost everybody, because mm-hmm. we look at him for those who have no spiritual connection at all. They look at him as a revolutionary figure, mm-hmm. uh, a figure of protest, you know, and then for those that, that are, you know, I think, I think he's just a symbol of, you know, there's something better outside the defined system, you know, there's something better outside of the, the rigid orthodoxy of, you know, or alleged orthodoxy of, of the religious leaders of the day. Um, there's something more truthful and more real beyond that. And um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's interesting. I think the biggest thing, you know, if I can throw my uh, advice in the ring too, you know, I think there's something to having these conversations. Um, you know, there's something to, you know, again, having conversations with people who believe differently, um, having conversations with people who, you know, it, it, it would, it could have been very easy for me to, um, do my episode and then start inviting people on who would say, yes, you know, that agreed. Um, but I think it is important. And it's something from day one of this show, I've encouraged people to do is sit down. Don't be afraid to sit down with a pastor, you know, like I understand, you know, there's, there's pushback to going and seeing a service. And I totally understand that. Um, but if you have friends who are pastors, like talk with them, you know, if you have uh, a friend, who's not a Christian, you know, it's, it's, you shouldn't be fearful of, of talking with them either. Um, I think when you start realizing you're auditing people to remove, <laughs> remove things that make you uncomfortable, you know, a hundred percent of the time, I think you put yourself in a really dangerous situation of becoming a, a default fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, as we kind of get near the end here, um, I, I, I definitely want to encourage people to pick up a copy of your book. Um, can you maybe share again, your, maybe your biggest takeaway, something where if someone's sitting here, they're on the fence about picking it up, uh, maybe they're, they're worried about, you know, uh, what it, what they think it might be, um, you know, where should people check it out? Uh, and then what can they expect, you know, picking up a copy of the book? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah, you know, the great. conversation and um, yeah, the big, the big idea of the book is that Christians need to rele- relearn that little word, perhaps, hmm. as it stands between these warring extremes of religious dogmatism and sort of crippling uh, doubt or even unbelief. And we need a reinvigorated imagination. We don't just need more information. We need 
um, our imaginations to catch fire by what I would even call is just sort of the, the, the fire of the gospel, the Holy Spirit. And we need to begin to think more creatively in order to think more Christianly. And so it's a book that's very weird in the sense that whenever somebody uses the term speculative to talk about theology, it is virtually always a put down. It's a shame word, you know? Um, and I think there is a place for speculation specifically for those people who feel torn between these two warring extremes. And there's something that's needs to be reclaimed in that word. That's almost always used as a kind of shame word or a, a kind of put down for people. It's a book that fuses theology because I'm a theologian with fiction. Uh, as you mentioned, I think too many of our apologetic arguments have, well, for one, they've taken the form of arguments, uh, <laughs> but for, for two, they've been overly um, sort of focused on sort of data evidence and, you know, sort of like cerebral thinking thingism. Yeah. And there is a need for uh, beauty and pathos to sort of speak into our, the apologetic task. And I think story does that in a way that argument doesn't. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why Jesus told stories. And so it's a, it's a book that deals with the importance of story and specifically what I would call inspired works of fiction to actually draw us um, toward a God who is creator, who is the author of creativity and not just Christian fiction, or maybe we should say especially not <laughs> Christian fiction. And so some of my conversation partners are people like Cormac McCarthy, um, John Steinbeck, others, you know, there are some Marilyn Robinson is a Christian author, Flannery O'Connor or something like that, but that these works of art can be things that um, God uses to draw us back into a kind of posture of uh, of trust, even when we feel completely torn between these warring extremes. And so it's a fusion of theology, of some of these cultural conversations that we've been having, but also of the importance of the arts and the imagination, if we're going to be people who um, are trying to reach out for this God that we can't see. And, uh, but for many of us that we're still incredibly compelled by in the form of Jesus and the, in his story. And so that's, those are a few things about the book. Uh, it's from IVP academic and folks can get it on the IVP website, but it's, I always say it's, it's kind of lightly academic. There are footnotes, but it is not a doctoral yeah. dissertation or, or something like that. Um, they can get it on the IVP site, or of course, you know, wherever, wherever you get your books online, uh, they can find it there. Awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely link out to it in the show notes. So I can check it out. And IVP puts out uh, amazing books, like always, always worth picking up, but um, this one definitely grab a, grab a copy from the link there. And you're uh, I applaud your bravery covering this topic. And um, I saw in your blog, when you talked about uh, releasing it, it's a book that you uh, want everyone to read, but you're scared anybody will read, you know, kind of kind of realm. And those are the kind of books that are most interesting to me are the ones where there, it is covering things that you don't hear about um, sitting in the pew of a church on Sunday. It goes in that uncharted territory. But um, thank you so much for for joining me on today's show. Uh, definitely everybody listening, grab a copy of the book, perhaps, and uh, be sure to uh, 
be sure to reach out on social media to Josh. Let him know what you think about the book, as long as it's a a kind message. (laughs) And uh, we'll uh, see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.